Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Penitza Allmark. And Penitza, it's wonderful to see you. We had a couple of glitches getting connected today because of timing issues and organising the, the distance, as it were, between Perth in Western Australia, where you are, and Madrid in Spain, where I am. But I'm just delighted to be with you and to have so distinguished a scholar speaking to us. Speaking of distinction, what feels distinctive to you today? What are you thinking about? What's troubling you? What's dynamizing you? What's going on with Panitza Walmart today, Prof? Well, today is very much what's been on my mind. Um, it's summer over here, and I've recently transitioned to a research professorship role. Prior to that, I was in university management. I was the Associate Dean of Arts at either Cowan University in Perth. For I've been in middle management for almost 10 years. So that's a long time in middle management. And yeah. so it's a it's a it's quite a big transition. Um, I'm so used to being that person of responsible for so many others, responsible mm -hmm. for the them. and some of my achievements, which I'm really proud of, is engaging with cultural studies throughout the curriculum um, across all the arts areas, from visual arts to design to history, politics, English, uh, public relations. There were over 12 majors we had um, in the former School of Arts. So that was really engaging and valuable and enriching process for me and for others to support staff, to develop the curriculum, to ensure that there was social inclusion, attention to gender throughout the curriculum and program and to support staff. So I feel this this process of care has always been that. I'm used to getting over a hundred emails a day and Many staff would joke that I was a, like a flight controller because I'd always been solving problems and, and managing so many tasks and issues at the same time. So it's quite, it feels quite a strange transition to to where I am now. Um, so, which is also very rewarding. And uh, as I've been told, it's my my turn, <laughs> my turn to explore and and develop my own research, which I've always have done um, throughout my my time in management. I've um, my research has always been about social inclusion, gender, and screen screen and visual culture. Um, now, a lot of people, when they step aside from managerial jobs, find it very difficult to go back to teaching. Very difficult to go back to studying, to finding things out because uh, they may have done none of that while they were deans or heads of department, whatever it might have been. But in your case, you have continued to publish and also been editing a journal. So I guess it wasn't such a separation from research as it is for some people. Um, absolutely. There was there was very little separation because I felt my, my teaching has always been research-informed and the kind of units that I developed were based on research um, across 
across my areas of popular music, feminism, travel, and photography. Uh, my role also, um, my role with Continuum, I'm the chief editor of Continuum. I've been involved with Continuum, which is the Journal of Media and Cultural Studies, which is published by Taylor and Francis. I've been involved with the journal as editor since 2005. So it's been a very long time, going on to nearly 20 years. My first issue that um, I edited was on identity and body politics, which is really interesting because when I look at it today, I'm thinking I'm still interested in the same issues, <laughs> the same concerns, and it permeates all my work. Mm. And it's been incredibly rewarding working with Continuum. Um, when I started, it was colloquially known as an Australian journal or a journal for Australian scholars. During my time there, it's grown and developed to a, a global journal. We have contributors from the US, Europe, South America, many from Asia. We have, at the moment, it's 226,000 downloads per year. So it's 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 quite it's it's a significant journal. It's a Q one journal. Um, if you if for those who are listening and are interested in impact and ratings, but it does have a very diverse range of cultural studies issues that are are published in the journal. And I should mention, uh, there's been quite a bit of criticism with Continuum in the early years when we moved to Taylor and Francis to a commercial publisher. But in my time with with working continuum and Taylor and Francis have no have had no impact in terms of editorial control. They just manage the proofing and publishing. The, so so that's that's, that's great to hear because that is far universal, I think. Mm. But it's wonderful that you have that level of autonomy as you should. And it's a great achievement to have expanded the reach of the journal so extensively in terms of contributors from all around the world. That's really, really wonderful. How have you done that? Has there been a particular strategy that you guys have enacted to make that happen? Um, yes, and I give credit to my fellow editors. Um, when I started, we had um, Brian Shoesmith, who was the founding editor, brought me on as a very young academic at that time. And he wanted a young female voice, and it was a very male-dominated journal at that time in terms of the editorship. And I've worked with Mark Gibson for many years, Greg Noble, uh, at the, uh, currently um, Anna Hickey Moody is amazing, and currently we have John Tebbett from RMIT and Tim Laurie from UTS, as well as um, Jess Taylor from ECU. Um, so we have an editorial team. We all work together and I give them credit because we work as a team. And when we, in terms of our editorial strategy, we look for articles. Mainly it's articles that are that are interesting and topical, capturing the zeitgeist of the time and also special issues. We've done, um, published quite a wide range of special issues, everything from David Bowie to um, a special issue on... Um, uh, the politics of listening. So it's been quite, quite a, quite a range and quite an interesting range. So sorry, in terms of sorry, go ahead. 
In terms of, uh, in terms of strategy, I think uh, the awareness of the journal and, and the and we get most of most of the articles that come in are not from from Australian academics, mm. um, which is which is quite interesting. So I think it, um, the journal getting better known. So we get a lot of articles coming in from Asia as well as the UK and Europe. Um, and you know, it again, we we're not really we're not looking at where they're from, but what they what they what people are writing about. What people have got to say. And just to for a little parenthetical note for listeners outside the loop, as it were, you, a couple of acronyms you mentioned. RMIT is Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, and UTS is University of Technology Sydney. Yeah. And yeah, so. That's also significant because um, with the journal, I'm from Western Australia and uh, Continuum was founded in Western Australia. So it has it has, still has the West Australian link, but we have always had editors from the other side of Australia, the eastern, the eastern coast of Australia, <laughs> which such as Sydney and Melbourne. And that, that's important to get a kind of a wider range. And I always feel coming from Perth, there is this huge geographical distance. Um, Perth is closer to Indonesia. It's three and a half hours, around three and a half hours to Indonesia. It takes a lot longer to get to Sydney or Melbourne. <laughs> so I always feel like on the edge of, of Australia. And, and I think that's given me some wider perspectives because I'm also not in the cliques or the connections that the East Coast academics have. So when I'm looking at at con contributors or special issues, I don't really have, I can kind of, I don't, I feel that I I'm let, I don't have any biases because I'm not really involved in that, in that scene, that I can look at it more openly and, and share my perspective. Getting on to some of your research areas, Prof, you mentioned gender and photography and immigration and travel. So perhaps we could start out by talking about travel, although that's not separate from those other topics, of course, because I know that was the theme of your doctorate. Yes, absolutely. My um, PhD many years ago, um, was titled and I'll, I'll read it's Un voyage vers une photographie feminine the gender politics of body and space and I'll just give you a little bit of background I was a photographer before I can became an academic so I was doing a lot of commercial photography but the kind of work that I wanted to do was much more critical and I had the opportunity with my PhD to explore issues of travel, looking at it from a French feminist perspective. So I'm not taking the approach of, of I'm looking at a more wider approach in terms of French feminism and, and um, looking at it from the embodied experience, but, and looking at it from, um, as, as a female photographer, and at the time I was quite young, <laughs> um, as a female photographer, what it was like being a street photographer. So I traveled to, and I was interested in representations of women, media representations, women, public media representations, if, to be more accurate. So posters, billboards, trash on the street that represented the desirable body. So the sexualized young, nubile female body. 
So looking at these posters and and juxtaposing that with what was happening on the street. So this, but also my experiences as, as a young woman on the street. So some of my images included the responses of people on the street, cars driving by, you know, shouting out and people interacting with me. I always try to ensure that there's an ethical approach and rather the camera as a as a weapon, which is often seen shooting with a gun, shooting with a camera, I see it as a utensil or tool to engage. So my photography had taken me in terms of travel to many cities across the world and looking at comparisons and what the common thread was that you know, the, the representation that there were similar representations to the female body found in nearly every city I went to. I mean, we were looking at, of course, Las Vegas, which is very hypersexualized, to the streets of Paris, Madrid, and Athens, um, Hong Kong, for example, Cairo, which is quite interesting. Um, one of the highlights and that I talk um, of my work was looking, I was there at during 1999, which was the J18 anti-capitalist protests um, in London. So the, there's a whole chapter on my protest photography and, and discussing what was published in the press the following day, which was images of violence and that whole rhetoric of, of street protesters, um, of, you know, focusing on males, focusing on violence and, and kind of this terror. But my photographs, um, which I did have an exhibition at the Perth Centre of Photography um, shortly after that, comparing the two approaches to street photography or protest photography was much more engaging. So it was the empowering others. So at that time, I was just walking around with the camera documenting what I was seeing uh, in the so-called protest, but it was just a gathering of a few thousand people dressed up and, caught, um, in, and it was titled The Carnival of Resistance. So I have these amazing images of people posing for me, engaging with me, rather than the press photography just focusing on the the min what what was at the time very a minimal amount of you know, violence, which you get in a lot of pro in many protests, mm. but rather than focusing on the the more mainstream, it's probably not mainstream, but in terms of press rhetoric, but what was actually what I was seeing, what was happening and how people were engaging. And in, especially in terms of being a young female photographer that I, you know, they were happy to pose for me. There was consent. Um, the photographs weren't stolen. Um, so there was, there was this whole ethical approach that I try to do and still try to do within my photographic work. And in terms of gender, which you've mentioned a few times, do you think that that denies you access to some photography opportunities in terms of who will pose and how and where and when and when it's safe to photograph them and or open up some opportunities to you? Because there are some things that are harder to do as a woman and some things that are easier to do as a woman. I feel a lot of... Um... There are more. There are some opportunities. So certainly, it's not all negative. Uh, there are there are some opportunities. For example, I've done work in um, the 
Thailand and Burma border in a town called Maysot, which is a border town, and looking at um, Burmese refugees, asylum seekers on the border. And a lot of the photographs that I took there, and there were there was a number of families that are working on the rubbish dump for a dollar a day. And and a lot of the photographs and that I that I made there, I would say took, <laughs> that I made there were with consent and it was much easier to speak with people much more, much, uh, there was much more interaction. And um, I feel it's given me a lot of more, more opportunities and speaking to other female photographers, they do say that it has given them an advantage in, in, in raising issues in regards to gender, women, children, um, social inclusion. Um, because it's less threatening. Women are seen as less threatening. Um, on the other side of the coin, being having a young, at that time, young female body, it's hard to be invisible on the street, and there is that sense of danger and threat. So um, I'm still worried about even now going out with a camera, like in crowds, I think like someone could just reach over and grab it at any time. And I'm just, I'm, I'm only five foot, just over five, yeah, around five foot tall. So it's having a small, petite female frame. And it is, it is much more threatening on the street because you just, it is that sexual danger. And, mm. yeah. and have you experienced that universally in the many different places where you've taken photographs or have you found some differences in terms of you know the the periods we live in because you've been doing this work on and off for a long time or the different countries that you've been in it depends where i'm at and i it it doesn't matter what country i'm in or what city i'm in i'm always on guard so walking around at night i'm always watching you know just kind of second guessing well if I, where I'm at and and being observant of my surroundings into in terms of danger now in some ways it's it's been positive because I think especially when I was younger I don't seem like a threat so I could have access to places that perhaps male photographers wouldn't and if a security guard came up to me I would just say I'm a tourist <laughs> and I you know I would say it in Spanish or I had that in Uruguay you know and I would I just said look I think I had probably I'd gone into a shopping area that they weren't sure why I was there with a camera and I kind of explained in Spanish and they were like oh okay that's fine um but I've noticed like so it has given me access because they I don't look threatening um but there, there's always that sense and I think it's growing up and I think it is a very Australian thing I'm, I'm just kind of generalizing but I was a young woman in Perth when they um Claremont serial killers um, was on the loose. <laughs> so there were a number of women killed in Perth in the 1990s um, over a short period of time. And there were lots of warnings to women saying, beware of your surroundings, don't get into taxis. If you get into taxis, take their number. At that time, mobile phones weren't that common. So there was a lot of um, awareness of the dangers of being out at night. 
Wow, I didn't and know about the Plymouth serial killers. It does sound very terrifying and terrorizing, too. It, it was a lot of media attention to it, um, and there was a lot of media attention to it. So I think that 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 kind of notion, and it's it's interesting because I've spoken to Singaporean women, and they have they don't have this sense. Well, the people that are, the women that I've spoken to didn't have that sense of danger of walking out at night or walking out alone, um, that I do as a Perth girl. You know? And you know, it's a lot to do with the media attention, but also my own experiences of being in the streets at night. You know, you know getting grabbed, <laughs> being pulled aside, and you know, having to find tactics to get out of the situation. That's sort of like the dark side of, of my research, but I've done a lot of positive things. So I, my, um, and I mentioned the shopping malls, and I've been in Uruguay, but I've been. It's a long term project I've been doing on shopping malls, and looking at gender and looking at treating shopping malls as I would cities. So looking at how gender is represented in shopping malls, looking at internal spaces. Um, I've just published a. A book chapter titled The Visual Spectacle of Shopping Malls as Tourist Destinations. And there's a series of photographs of that. It's the book is titled Ambience Tourism and the City. And it's a Taylor and Francis um, Routledge book. Um, I and th that the shopping mall collection of series has been going on for about 10 years now. Um, I had a solo exhibition in London in 2016 looking at the visual spectacle of shopping malls. Um, so that's I'm still continuing that. I'm kind of fascinated by the statement um, um, that uh, um, in terms of how um, I've gone blank. <laughs> I'm just sorry, I've just gone blank for a moment. <laughs> my work my work on shopping malls has been going on for more than 10 years. And I've been looking at gender and shopping malls, looking at representations on billboard screens, um, the, the spaces of shopping malls. I've published a chapter on um, recently published a chapter on shopping malls titled The Visual Spectacle of Shopping Malls as Tourist Destinations. Um, it's in a book called Ambience, Tourism and the City. It's by, it's a Routledge book. I've, um, in terms of uh, in terms of shopping malls, I'm kind of interested in George Ritz's statement um, or the concept of cathedrals of consumption. So I do want to take that further and work with diptychs of um, the shopping malls, um, the, the similarities between the shopping mall aspects of the shopping mall and places of worship and play with that and I a lot of my work my visual work is about binaries and juxtapositions bringing together uh, binary oppositions and and playfulness and irony and that's part of my technique of uh, the photography feminine or drawing on ecliteur feminine that playfulness the irony juxtapositions um, which shares a lot of similarities with post postmodern documentary photography. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, one of the other functions that malls sometimes play, particularly in the global south, but not only, is that prior to opening time, they literally are like cathedrals because evangelical churches pay to occupy them, put out plastic chairs and hold services, right? Absolutely. Um, uh, I have a colleague who's been working on um, places of worship and he's written about shopping malls um, in, in the Philippines that attract and which has places of worship attract hundreds of of followers to the shopping mall. And, you know, once you finish with the service, you can do a bit of shopping. Absolutely. So it is... Absolutely. Same in Latin America, same in Britain, actually. in places that are still occupied in some sense by migrant groups who are low income and for whom this can be an opportunity to use these spaces for other purposes. Speaking of migrants, that is another important theme in your research that you've written about. I wonder if you could tell us a, a wee bit about that, what attracts you to that topic and what you've discovered. Hey, now the work on migrants, it's been a lot of collaborative work on, on migrants and um, specifically I've published on female Indonesian migrant workers in Hong Kong in collaboration with Dr. Irfan Wayudi, Yawayudu from Surab um, he's from the University of Alanga in Surabaya, Indonesia. Surabaya is the second largest city. Um, the work was looking at how how women are, especially female, well, how women are treated in Hong Kong, the female Indonesian migrant workers, looking at social justice issues and the place. And so it follows a lot of the themes across all the work that I've published and looking at social inclusion, social justice um, and gender and representation and having a voice in the situation in Hong Kong for female Indonesian migrant workers, they are facing a number of challenges um, under Hong Kong law. They have to live in the in their workplace, so some of them do not have their own room. So, and they only have one day off a week, and where they can socialize. So this was a, a certainly a problem during COVID, where the hours were even more restricted. So the issue of, of migrants has always been on, has been a key theme, and I, I see that kind of building in my future work as, as well. Um, my parents have been migrants. I've, um, I've, you know, they, their parents came from somewhere else. So I've like three generations of people moving from various countries and cities. And um, so I think, you know, that theme of travel has, is quite, embedded in my work in my being so do you see yourself now as a perth girl as it were or when you were growing up do you see yourself as a perth girl or were you more marginal than that i see myself as a perth girl i was and and i think it's a lot to do with being born a uh, born australian born in perth hmm. um it's actually and my interest in travel is probably because it's been quite localised, my formative years. I was born in 
the same suburb that I, well, in the neighbouring suburb that I live in and I've worked and went to school and university in the same suburb um, and lived for, for many years. So I've, I have had like a small village experience. Um, I've also, um, growing up in a Perth inner city suburb, which at that time were a lot of European migrants. So I was one of one of many children of migrants. So it didn't feel unusual. We were many of us were Australian born. Um and yeah, that it just felt normal for me <laughs> until I went to university. And then I was like, oh, I'm actually the outsider here and, and quite marginal. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting. So because you had a different sort of name from the Anglo-Irish dominance, I suppose, of university life. One of the things that you talked about in terms of your work as a manager or administrator, whichever term we should use, is the attempt to broaden inclusion at the University Edith Cowan. Obviously, you've done that very successfully in the journal that you edit. But how was that feasible? How was how was that done at Edith Cowan? And what sorts of broadening took place? Hey, um, there were a few strategies. One was to increase study tours um, to develop. So um, a number of the staff got Colombo grants, new Colombo grants to take Australian students to various countries. For example, we had a program for photographers to go to Bangladesh, a photojournalist to do a photojournalism course to work with photojournalists in Bangladesh. They also went to Shanghai to work with photography students there. We had fashion students going to Guangzhou in China. So there was a lot of international engagement. I personally took a group of students to India and worked with um took them to Bollywood, worked with a um, worked with a institute in Pune on with media students. So there was a lot of cross exchanging um, and collaboration um, between Australian students and the local students and staff. I've been very fortunate to have a number of and encourage a number of international PhD students to come to Australia. I've had um, students from Taiwan, China, and Indonesia, and I'm really kind of pleased with, especially with the development. Um, and my work with Indonesia has extended, you know, from from that, from those connections, and for, and for other staff. Um, I, our executive dean Clive Barstow has done a great deal of work working in China, and he's. Um, brought um, art, um, Chinese artists to Australia and um, our artists and academics have gone over to Shanghai to exhibit as well. So the, we've we've very much as a team effort, as a kind of the, the key, the central team focused on internationalisation. And that was one of the key work that we did in terms of bringing in students, creating opportunities for students that may not have thought about going to university. So there have been ways of um, opportunities and approaches that they could still come to university through a um, 
another program. So, and there's been a lot of success stories and it's been very rewarding just to hear students' stories where they said that they never thought that they could go to university and there are mature age students, for example, that had come back in their 40s and, and thought they would just give it a go and and have done really well and, and have contributed to the community in, in the, and the workforce. So, you know, in terms of of providing advantages or providing opportunities for others, um, they're, they're some of the work that I was doing at ECU. That's, that's wonderful to know. Jumping back, if I could, to when I asked about whether you see yourself as a Perth person, you've also done some work on the music world in Western Australia in the 1980s, I think. So historical. Was that in any way autobiographical or no? Some of it was, actually. Um, I'm surprised you know that work. Um, Yes. Um, Well, it started with a, it's a collaborative work with um, Professor John Stratton and he's, a lot of his more recent works on popular music. So that was semi-autobiographical. So I was talking about my experiences of going clubbing, as we, as we call it in Perth, at, around that time. And I was certainly, I was underage at that time too, but it's okay to say that now. Um, but what I noticed is, and as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in an inner city suburb that was heavily dominated by European migrants at that time. But there were certain nightclubs that they that they we would go to, you know, and it, it felt very in, in terms of belonging, in terms of the kind of music, it there were certain clubs that attracted different certain ethnicities. Um so you know and you know the Italians would go to a certain club and um other ethnicities, the Baltic, Yugoslav, what we called at the time Yugoslav or Macedonians would go to a certain club. Um, there was the white Australians would be more dominant in other clubs that played more kind of top 40 hits. And it was there's also a relation, a correlation with the kind of music played. And what I was interested in and the clubs that I was interested in was clubs that played black music and that that those clubs were frequent by people of from the global majority, so people who were non-Anglo. Interesting. And this black music was black American music. Black Amer- yeah, certainly. It was it was mainly black American music, and the DJ at the time used to, and this is you know, before streaming and downloading, would um, actually look at um, kind of. UK, we'd also look at UK and US um, hip hop, R&B, um, black music, the genres of black music, and we'd bring that music um, and to play it in the club. I was also influenced at the time in the 1980s. We In Perth, there were a number of um, US naval ships that would come to port, to the Fremantle port, and the US servicemen would go out at night looking for a club and that and many were looking for a club that played black music and one of the clubs was Jules nightclub in Murray Street in Perth so that yeah that was it was interesting in terms of ethnicity and music and um 
and 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 also these kind of ethnic divides as well at certain you know you you know I would hear people wouldn't go to certain clubs because you know certain ethnic groups would be there. <laughs> wow. Um, and was that a symbol or an index of a wider tension in class terms or in male violence or anything like that? That's that's really interesting because there are certain times, especially um, the Australian, the white Australian clubs that you know, that was they were known for violence and fights. Where the club that I went to, it was, um, I had friends at school would say, oh, "I wouldn't go there. That's just full of black people. You know, that's people of you know, you know, <laughs> that's for the coloured people. You know." So it was kind of racial segregation. I wouldn't say imposed segregation but people chose the club that they felt comfortable with and the community but also built community and um in my interviews um with people they often uh, some of them had met their partners at their clubs and and their, their partners came from the same ethnic background that they had so it was a way of meeting people Interesting. Um, like, go ahead uh, I, I was just and thinking about dress styles it was also fashion played an important role because um and I don't think I talk about it that much in the article but or in the chapter as well but um the sense the, the dress styles so for example a club called Pinocchio's it was much more at the time, what would seem as Australian, you know, singlets and jeans were okay and dressing down. So a lot of dressing down T-shirts were fine. And the club Jewels, which is on the other side of the Perth, of Perth City, um, had, it was very much focused on, at that time, 80s fashion. So there was a boutique called Renoir's that a lot of men, young men, would go to get suits made or sometimes there were suits they could buy off the rack. Um, but it was very much like the high fashion um, of its time. So, you know, the, how you dressed is where you, you know, where you fitted in. If you liked dressing up, you would go to a certain club if you were just comfortable going out for in your jeans and a t-shirt then then you know that would be the Australian based clubs. Interesting and what about big hair wasn't the 1980s uh, an era of big hair? Yeah absolutely big hair everywhere I, I don't think that I from memory I don't think that was any any distinctions between the clubs and that was that was a fashion but it was it's really interesting because I'm on a number of Facebook groups looking at um, clubs in Perth and a lot of people are reminiscing of that age where they're reminiscing of their younger years <laughs> and posting photos and um, yeah the big hair is evident um, evident in the images um, but what's interesting about Jules is a lot of the images look like um, images I've seen in clubs in the US of the the fashion and and the people so a lot of people emulating what they were seeing at the time on on Rage or Countdown yeah which were television um, programs in Australia that were showing music videos from local and international contexts. Is the club world important now in Perth and does it divide similarly or is it something where you feel as though you can't go anymore but you don't really fit in? 
I I think it is it was it is of it was of its time. And I think the 1980s, in terms of what I was looking at in the in my research work, um, this was the time of multiculturalism in Australia, um, the peak time of multiculturalism in Australia. Um, it was also the second gener first second generation Australians. So there were it were there were much more people of first and second generation were looking for people similar to them. And I you know it, the cultural makeup of Australia is quite different now. Um, and it would be quite different research and I I think it I, I'm very much into embodied research and speaking from experience. so it's it's not something I probably can comment too much on, but okay. I do understand that there's a shift a shift in Australia's makeup and um, and how would you describe that shift? You've spoken of growing up in a part of Perth City that was predominantly composed of migrants of European backgrounds and their children. What's the story now? It's, it's interesting because um, if I just speak about the neighbourhood that I grew up in and I still occupy, um, that it's been gentrified. <laughs> Well, um, everyone that I knew has, and their families have moved out or passed on, and it's a very white, gentrified neighbourhood. So, um, so certainly inner city suburbs have shifted. I mean, there's it's a different makeup in Australia. There's a lot more um, people from the African continent and um, migrants from from other parts of the world. It's not so. It's not the post-war migrants that that I had when I grew up and also the shifting from the 70 late 70s and 80s they were um once the white australia policy was eradicated so um ended informally ended um there are more migrants coming from southeast asia and and and, and the asian region and other parts of the world so it was quite it's there there are a shift in in perth's makeup and ethnic makeup so just to give some context, this white Australia policy that you mentioned was a policy that the United States and Australia, in a sense, mimicked one another with. And it was um, only in 1965 that the US ended its policy of preference for people from Northern European backgrounds. At that time, the United States was basically over 80% white. And... <clears throat> Now it's below 60%. Uh, Australia had a policy of wanting Northern European migrants, but also Southern European migrants. So lots of folks from Greece and Italy, you'd have entire villages that would migrate. Uh, and uh, lots of Irish people too from, from Northern Europe, as well as after the war, in particular, lots of these folks and, and lots, as you said, from Eastern and some from Central Europe, and then this was dropped in Australia a, a few years after a similar policy was dropped in the United States. These were initially enacted in order to try to deal with Chinese immigration, which was seen as a, a major threat to the white male industrial proletariat and farming groups. Getting back to what you said about the area where you grew up now being occupied by, I guess, Anglo-descended people, probably lots of them from Britain, probably lots from England. That suggests that despite a new framework to the population, 
new kind of population in Australia, class still maps onto traditional oligarchic formations of ethnicity. Is that right? So um, Anglo folks still have most political and economic control, or have I got that wrong? In part, um, I'm, the suburb that I grew up in, born and grew up in, um, at the time was was affordable, and that that hence it attracted a lot of of migrants. And I should add that my my parents actually came from. Um, a came from colonial Burma, so they had um, a mixed background. So they came in with during the white Australian policy. So they have a mixed background, but they part of, when they came to us when they were interviewed to come to Australia, they had to show evidence that they were white or they had European ancestry. Um, they and I, I know of similar families that were actually kind of brought in to be interviewed by the Australian overseas embassy to actually check that they were white enough <laughs> at the time and there were families that were really concerned that that had a mixed background that had children that were darker and they would kind of try to not bring them in for the interview if they, if they could because they were there were people that were rejected from coming to Australia and there were a lot of political turmoil at that time in Burma because of uh, the military regime had taken over and the nationalist movement that were forcing anybody who was non-Burmese to leave the country. So it's a little bit of background. They were in places where neither place... They, they um, yeah, they weren't giving... They weren't granted citizenship where they were born because of their, their background. Um, my mother had a, a British passport, so it, she could have gone. To, we could have, they could have gone to the UK, but they preferred Australia. My grandmother had married an Australian, um, so yeah, there were there were links there. But yes, they there was they they weren't given citizenship, and so they were they're very proud to be Australian, and they were really happy to be here. And, <laughs> and my father. My father never saw it as home where he was born. <laughs> he always said he wanted to leave. That was always something he wanted to leave the country. He never felt there. And my mother came from a British background and she was quite happy there because she was living the colonial life. And what was your father's citizenship? Um, my father my father has a European um European ancestry, but it was also my great grandmother was Burmese, so he had a mixed background. Right. Um, so he was the problem, as it were, in coming to Australia. Well, he. It's interesting because my mother said she went for the interview without my father, um, but um, and they saw my 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 brother, which was much, he was much older than he was. He was light skin. Um, but it would see what yeah, what is interesting is that my my father never felt at home in the country he was born because he was always you know stuck in between. You know, yeah. he wasn't he was stuck in between. Um and you know, he'd seen, you know, they from the uh, they were they were there during World War Two, you know, they they have their own trauma and through, you know, military re revolution and the coup and, yeah. So, British imperialism, Japanese imperialism, nationalist mm -hmm. revolution, um, a whole set of terrifying things. 
Although, as you said, your, your mum had, had obviously had, had some of the fruits of the colonial life in amongst those horrors. Wow, that's quite a story. I appreciate your sharing it with us. Um, and I love also this notion of feeling as though you belong growing up because there are people sort of like you, in inverted commas, in your neighbourhood, but then going to university and suddenly finding this Anglo world that's dominant and where you you look and sound and feel different, yeah? I think that's a really interesting story. Yeah, I do. It did feel... Um... It, feel, it did feel strange going to university because I was, uh, especially out of my group of friends, I was the only one who went to university. Um, the kind of work, because I was always interested in something creative and, and critical at the same time, the kind of work and, and the disciplines that I had gone into were mainly dominated by, well, populated by people of um, a white Anglo background. They were not many people from other ethnicities mm -hmm. and it's still really in the minority and I, I've really tried within my time as associate dean and my management to encourage students and also mentor many students um, to success and you know and, and give them show them this can be done this your voice is valued and that's really important to acknowledge that there are other voices um, and in my role, especially, I, you know, have been very concerned with, you know, in, encouraging other voices and 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 also knowing that not, some voices are not being heard. Well, Prof, I've got a couple more questions for you, if I may, and then I'd like to throw it open to you to add uh, anything that you wish to say. My first question is to ask you a little bit about the condition of cultural studies uh, today in Australia, and in particular in Western Australia. And here I'm picking up on something I've read that you were the co-author of, I think, that touches on these questions. So what's going on? What should be going on? What might be going on? Over the last 10 years in Western Australia, across the universities, there's been a shift, a move away from cultural studies teaching or cultural studies curriculum or cultural studies courses to be specific. Um, Murdoch, over I think around 15 years ago, removed cultural studies as we know it. And Curtin, there was an attempt to move, to, to remove cultural studies um, as well. Um, there was a, a petition with thousands of signatures to keep cultural studies, but what cultural studies at the moment is more film studies than what we know as a broader or what my take is which is a much broader perspective of cultural studies looking at you know following Stuart Hall's kind of approach looking at um, identity identity politics identity um, race class gender at ECU I've been a strong advocate for cultural studies or a cultural studies approach embedded in core units across all disciplines, as well as having a major, a significant major in media and cultural studies um, that has been 
shifted to um, um, the course that I, as I knew it, it's been shifted to a, a broad communications course, which focuses on public relations and advertising, um, minus the cultural studies angle. Uh, meeting cultural studies is still, will still be there in some form, um, but in a much, um, not as as a as a dominant force with the, across all disciplines and as an as a strong identity, and but this has been going and um, what's happened um, across WA is systematic of what's happening across cultural studies in Australia and other universities where courses are moving towards communication and cultural studies academics and practitioners have had to look at other ways to engage um, engage and focus on on cultural cultural studies practices looking at for me it's social inclusion social justice looking at the everyday looking at the popular and critiquing that and it sounds as though the pressures from above and perhaps from below i don't know or towards a more instrumental approach to classes uh, something that students and parents and university bureaucrats can say will get you a job or increase your earnings capacity rather than mm -hmm. a form of critical citizenship and activism that i guess is associated with the sorts of tendencies that you've identified would that be fair thing to say that would be a fair thing, but that argument or that push to find a job that will get you find do a course that will get you a job has always been there. Especially, well, it's always been there, and I've been in academia for over twenty years, and and I'm at a university which we get a lot of first time first first time first generation um, students. So the yeah. first they're the first generation to come to university. So there, there is that pressure there, but they've engaged so well and so critically with cultural studies practices um, and, and embedding that. But I think there are market forces that, you know, that have shifted and some university administrators feel that feel that pressure that they need to, to go with that flow. Um, I have listened to one of the other, your other podcasts with Helen Wood and she does mention about cultural studies needing to find a voice outside of the of the comfortable spaces that we have we've occupied and and maybe that's a, a shift to a shift for the future but it is disappointing because I I see cultural studies embedded in everything we do and that's kind of the practices that I've um, been following and um, within my management role that in you know, every course should engage with issues of social justice the issues of looking at gender and activism and that's that's just part of who we are and how we can contribute and improve the quality of life not for us just ourselves but for others and prof my my second question my last question for handing to you is to ask about what's next for you uh, having moved into this research professorship again congratulations on that do you have particular things you're planning to do or are up to now 
Oh, it's such a, a very exciting time. So I start off saying like, this is a really weird transition that I finally, I've been given this amazing opportunity um, to develop more fully my research and focus. And so I'm focusing on a few, a few different projects. So mm. I've been, I've, I've highlighted earlier my work with Indonesian academic Irfan Wayudi, but I've also um, I've collaborated to form a, um, a research collaboration called the Indonesia-Australian Arts, Media and Culture Initiative with Dr. Fanwa Yudi and Dr. Kerr from Kershaw University. So we're looking at um, strengthening the, the academic and creative connections between Australia and Indonesia. So that's one of the projects. Um, in terms of research uh, writing or creative work, um, I'm, which and we've talked about very very um, briefly about my work in popular music and gender. So I'm doing a book with um, the thirty three and a third Oceana series on popular music, um, on the work of um, on Kate Sobrano's work, um, first album Brave, which was released in nineteen eighty nine, and it's quite a significant album. Um, Kate Sobrano, for, for the international listeners, um, was one of the first Australian women of colour to get a, a solo album, making the top 40 charts, picking at number two. So, But the, this, the way I'm looking at the album is looking at it from a post-feminist post perspective. Kate Sobrano turned down a deal with Stock Aitken and Waterman, which made Carly Minogue famous and produced an album that resisted the, the market forces at the time. So I quite like this, this edge um, and this history of, of, of the album. Um, and, I, you know, I'm interested also, you know, as um, her post-feminist sensibility, which is, you know, in, engaging with this agency and resilience, um, and the music that she's produced was an amalgam of soul, funk, jazz, pop, and using a lot of mu black music at a time when Australian popular music was dominated by male Oz rock. <laughs> and male Oz rock, I, could you contextualise that a little bit for other listeners? <laughs> they could probably guess what it might entail, but maybe you could give us a few more. <laughs> Toby, um, now it's interesting because male Australian Oz um, rock, which is very dominated Australian rock music, which is dominated dominated by a lot of male voices, um, and for me, and it goes back to the to the work that I've did on clubbing and dance yes. and music, dancing and black music, where Australian Oz rock for me it was not danceable music. <laughs> So, Toby, you could elaborate a lot more on Australian rock because I'm, I'm, I'm probably not the one who could talk a lot about Australian rock, but I'm happy for you to interject for our I, audience. I don't think I'm qualified, but I guess there's probably a tradition which is, you know, white guy, overbite, rhythm and blues, shouty, lengthy guitar solos. Shouty uh, pub music, um, yeah, it's music that that is played in pubs, uh, 
usually dominated by male audience as well. Mm. Not music that you can dance to, very rock-based um, music. So, and Kate Sobrano's work is, you know, she, at her first album drew, you know, a lot from jazz and black music, black dance music, soul music, uh, some covers from Stevie Wonder, the Commodores, um, which is, it's, yeah, it's it, it was quite different at the time, and and not a lot has been academically written about it. So that that's one of my projects that I'm working on. Um, another project that I'm working on, which I'm very excited about, um, being of a certain age as well, is a book title, the working title, and I'll only reveal a little bit. It's called Over Fifty and Fabulous. Um. Older women and the desirable body. Wow. Well, um, you should only so, reveal what you want to reveal. Yeah. So that, that's that's the working title. So I'm looking at um, screen representations of older women on uh, presented as the desirable body and drawing a um, um, drawing from Amy Schumer's. Um, comedy sketch and I'm not sure if you've seen this but it's a Amy Schumer um, American comic who did a sketch on the last fuckable day if I can say that and mm. it's about when women reach a certain age and they're not presented as the desirable or the love interest or the desirable body um, on screen so but I kind of challenged that and maybe you know present a different argument so that's some exciting work and I'll still be a Thirdly, I'm, I'm continuing my photographic work, which I've put on hold for a while because, as I mentioned, a lot of my documentary work involves travel and 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 um, part of my process, part of my ethical process is to spend time and engage um, in the space that I'm working in. So I finally have the time to work on some other projects. Wonderful. It sounds really, really exciting. And um, like many of your readers and your former and current students, no doubt. I'm thrilled to be able to see the development of those projects. Prof, is there something you might wish to add to what we've discussed that we haven't touched on? I felt like I've covered a lot in in the in the time that we're talking. So I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to share with you what I'm up to, my passion for cultural studies. Um, my collaborative work with um, and leadership and and the future and how 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 important it is to to give people a voice and I think um, you've done that in the podcast so thank you oh, thank you Panisa thank you very much.